This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transform their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning and welcome to Smart Companies Radio Casey. I'm Mary McKenna in for Kelly Scanlon. We are talking about fraud and corporate theft and what can be done about it today. Our guest is Michael Tapman, who rose through the ranks of the FBI, reaching the level of special agent in charge, commanding some 250 FBI agents throughout the United States. Here in Kansas City, his most notable case, the Red Lake High School Massacre investigation thrust him into the global eye and uh, drew some praise for his life. Live news broadcast. We've seen him in Kansas City as well in front of the news cameras. Michael is called upon as a media crime and security analyst, having appeared on CNN, HLN, American Heroes Channel. I love that channel. And the Huffington Post Live. As a security expert and author of three books, Michael is a much sought after speaker for corporate events, and he joins us today on Smart Companies Radio KC. And good morning, sir. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And thank you. Originally from New York, you make yes. your home here in Overland Park? Yes, we did, 15 and years ago. 15 years ago. So you were head of the bureau here in Kansas City for for how long? Right. I was the assistant agent in charge from 2000 to 2002. And then when my next uh, promotion came up back to headquarters, I only had a few years left to retire. And a few moves left, so my wife said, you know, we have a young family. Why don't you finish your career and we'll stay here because this is, you cannot find a better place to raise a family. Boy, that is the truth. Yeah. That is absolutely the truth. But born and raised in New York City, and you graduated from John Jay College of Criminal Justice with a uh, Bachelor's of Science degree in Criminal Justice, later earning his Master's in Commercial Security Administration. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Now, you wrote a book, uh, What Year Did Walking the Corporate Beat? What year was that released? I got published in 2009. I started writing that as soon as I retired, and I was kind of decompressing at home and not sure you know, what to do. I, both my feet were surgical boots, and so I had a lot of mental energy. And both my feet were surgical boots? Were surgical boots, yes. I had surgery on both feet. So you talk about having nowhere to go and no one to see. <laughs> yeah. That pretty much epitomized that. Yeah, I would say so. So I had a lot of mental energy, and I just started thinking back on all the things in my career, and some of the things you're thinking about, you know, the good cases and the exciting investigations, the raids. But a lot of it I was thinking about was sort of the goofy things, kind of what went wrong. Uh, sometimes I think about my time in narcotics. I was working with very experienced FBI agents and New York City police detectives, probably the most experienced in the world. And sometimes we'd plan things out really well. And yet at the end, we'd look at each other and go, Phew, I'm glad we didn't shoot each other. You know, things got so messed up. And I started to wonder, how did that happen? How did all these really well-planned out events with really qualified people, you know, very experienced, qualified people go wrong? And as I started thinking about all these things, I started seeing a pattern. 
And it really came down to a matter of thought processes and business processes that were broken. And it became sort of an armchair uh, social psychologist. And uh, that's what the book's about, all these processes that break down in the course of a day uh, to make good, good go to bad. And you also founded Spirit Asset Protection. Uh, tell us a little bit about this organization. Right, Spirit Asset Protection is my consulting firm. Spirit being sort of the acronym of the services that we provide. And I thought it kind of gave this nice aura of you know, looking over you, protecting you. So it just kind of worked out conveniently. We're your guardian angel. We're guardian angel, yeah. exactly. And we help businesses with uh, fraud and theft, uh, internal security. We do a lot of pre-employment screening, which has become a very important uh, step in your risk management now, screening people before you hire them. Uh, that's a big bulk of what we do. And what we try to do is to help companies prevent fraud before it happens. But we find we're most often coming in afterwards. After something's happened, they've had a fraud, a mysterious disappearance, they'll ask us to come in and sort of get to the bottom of it. So walk us through the steps. What are some of the mistakes, the big mistakes that business owners make when hiring a new employee? Are there repeated mistakes that you're seeing over and over. It's like they didn't do this or they did this and said, well, they didn't call us. That's one of their mistakes. But uh, what are they doing wrong? Right, exactly. You make a very good point. Just last week, I presented in front of a group of uh, construction business owners, and I talked about fraud. And I said, you know, I'm always called after the fact, never before. Then Monday, I was meeting with the local news about this big fraud right here in the local area. Major companies. Uh, over a million dollars worth of fraud by one person. It was uh, Black and Beach and Garmin. Yes. Yeah. And again, it's only alleged right now. You know, That's right. Allegedly. Let's, let's remember she that. She stole this money, allegedly. Allegedly. You know, we always give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but just in hearing five minutes of what happened, I see, again, the same pattern, as you're pointing out, which is weak internal controls. And these are big companies that I'm sure have been through audits by major firms who really just look for you know, the, the basics of financial reporting. But your internal controls are not your locks and your alarms and security guards. It's, it's your business processes. And here we had someone who was a payroll manager who just had a lot of access to a lot of different business processes without any checks and balances, without segregation of duties. And I'm going to guess without doing my favorite thing is surprise audits. Just jumping in and just checking something for no reason, unannounced, and making sure everything's in place. How did she allegedly hide this money that she, that she stole? And, and quite a lot uh, from Black and & Veatch and even more from, from Garmin. Right. And based just on what we know from you know, the public information, mm-hmm. is it was a matter of very simply taking money from one account, payroll, wire transferring it to another account of a client overseas or an employee who is no longer living. And then so she had access to that banking information, then wiring it again to her own accounts that were controlled by her. It's pretty simple. It was just a matter of, of taking money from that you control in the corporate uh, accounts, moving them to your own controlled accounts. So we see ghost employees, uh, you know, ghost vendors, or vendors being overpaid, employees being overpaid, approval for expenses that didn't occur, and, and taking a kickback. These are all very common. And part of the problem is that if you don't have someone on the other end or someone involved in the middle who could possibly report this or detect it, and you have the same person controlling all these business processes, it's not going to be detected unless you get lucky or you happen to have an audit or a surprise audit when you say, all right, show me this and show me that. And I know I did that in the FBI, and I found many uh, false in our business processes even in the FBI just by doing a surprise audit. Garmin and Black and Beach, larger organizations, we're not talking about small companies. That's right. But smaller companies, probably nickel and diamond, so they have a bookkeeper, and many of the owners, it's like numbers aren't my thing. You're exactly right. They say numbers aren't my thing. And not only that, when we get to the smaller companies, the hiring tends to be a little more informal than we find in the big companies. But even in the big companies, 
our people are the best. We only hire the best. Our employees are all trustworthy. And, and that's great. It's wonderful to feel that way. We certainly want to be positive about our employees. But small businesses, 30% of them will fail in the course of a year due to employee theft and fraud. So it is, it is your people you know, that you trust every day who are robbing you blind right under your nose. Uh, I did one matter here for a local business. Again, they hired a family member who just was, had access to the QuickBooks and very simply was writing out checks uh, to herself. But on the stub, it was payable to another business, you know, one of their clients or something that looked legitimate until they were out $30,000, $40,000, which is a lot of money for a small business. A lot of money. And then they called me and said, oh, what did we do wrong? What do you do wrong? You trusted someone. You gave them access. They were able to write a check and also manipulate the stub, which you shouldn't have that power to do. In other words, that should be printed automatically without having the ability to audit it. I'm sorry, to edit it. And then until you write a money, you didn't realize that the money is getting paid to this person, not to where you thought it was going. We're talking today with a former special agent in charge, Michael Tabman, who has written a number of books, some of them fiction. We'll talk about those as well, and we'll talk about more in the corporate crime and fraud arena in just a moment. First, we'll take a break. You're listening to Smart Companies Radio KC. I'm Mary McKenna in for Kelly Scanlon, and we'll be right back. Interested in growing your business? Thinking Bigger Business Media has the resources you need to grow your company to the next level, whether it's an aspiring business, a startup, established, or mature. Thinking Bigger provides the how-to strategies, critical connections, and key information to make your business more productive and more profitable. Check them out at ithinkbigger.com and find out what successful Kansas City business owners already know. Thinking Bigger Business Media is the resource for growing businesses. Visit them today at ithinkbigger.com. Let's go inside the mind of a 10-year-old. I should have worn earrings today. Buckle up, Sarah. Michaela's got, like, the best earrings. Sarah, buckle up. I wish my name was Michaela. We're not hitting the road until you buckle up, honey. Oh, yeah. Seatbelt. I wonder if there's pizza at school today. It can be tough getting through to kids, but it's your job to make sure they're wearing your seatbelts. Never give up until they buckle up. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Visit safercar.gov slash kidsbuckleup for more information. Hi, I'm Tamika Bryant. And I'm Christy Porter. We're here to talk about real estate that matters. We're going to talk about everything real estate. Anything you want to know from buying a house to selling a house, from investing in real estate to flipping real estate. We invite you to listen every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. or on demand with our podcast. Right here on Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio at blogtalkradio.com. Just tune in at 9 o'clock Thursday. <laughs> yeah, squirrel. Yeah, squirrel. <laughs> Can we just do that? Nine o'clock, don't touch it, just sit by your radio and wait. And welcome back. This is Smart Companies Radio KC, and I'm Mary McKenna. In for Kelly Scanlon today, our guest is Michael Tabman, former FBI special agent who was here in the Kansas City office. You've worked in other offices as well, correct? Oh, yeah, I worked in several offices during my career. Uh, Kansas City was... I don't want to say a stop along the road, but that's how the career path goes. So I was the assistant agent in charge for two years, 2000 to 2002. And I'm very glad to say I was the assistant agent in charge here during 9-11. So I have that emotional tie to having been here during you know, one of our great crises. We're talking about corporate fraud today and, of course, some of the events just recently in the news, which happened with Black and Veatch and Garmin right here in Kansas City, in the Kansas City metro anyway. And a lot of it boils down to vetting employees in the first place. And your company, your consulting company, Spirit Asset Protection, is all about that. Tell us a little more about Spirit Asset and what are business owners missing 
that your company provides? A lot of business owners I talk to, even in big business, they don't take the pre-employment screening seriously. If you let's just run them through, make sure everything's you know okay on the surface, and let's just get them in. And I'll ask uh, the human resource director or a CEO, well, what are you getting for your money? I'll say, oh, I get the background check, the criminal background check. And they don't even know what that means most of the times. Uh, there's not one monolithic set of records. You can't push one button and get someone's record. Now, even if you go and get fingerprinted by the FBI, even that may not be accurate. And, really? you, may, and you may get information that you, to which you're not entitled. How is it that fingerprinting might not be accurate? Well, the, no, not the fingerprint. Well, if, if you had the fingerprinting when I was a cop, I could tell you records probably not in the FBI database. All my fingerprints got returned saying these are terrible. Uh, and then like the rest of the cops used to say, well, let the FBI come down here and do it if they want. Uh, but that's uh, old technology, of course. Uh, but even the records are incomplete because uh, the FBI records are not theirs. They only, it's, they only compile what's given to them by the police department. So you may get, for example, a history of someone's arrests. Well, you're not supposed to consider those arrests unless they actually result in conviction. So one, we know where to look. We know what to look for. We stay abreast of the latest rules, and there are rules on pre-employment screening. And then we know how to vet out and, and take out the information that you shouldn't have. And there's a lot of uh, intricacies. Uh, for example, you have to be consistent in what you uh, report. You have to be consistent on how you report. For example, uh, some employees, you could screen them differently, but you have to make sure you're not doing anything uh, discriminatory. Well, let's delve a little deeper on what you just said. You can't use arrests as part of the pre-employment criteria unless there's been a conviction. conviction right. But what if someone has been, you're vetting an employee, and uh, this uh, man or woman has been arrested numerous times for, for fraud within a company, for stealing from the, the, the company coffers, but no conviction ever came down. Do you not report that? Could that not be in the report? That's right. We do not report that. The only time we would report an arrest if it's pending, so because the employer needs to know if there's a potential. So if, if they were uh, not convicted, you know, uh, exonerated, or even if it was uh, put, let's say, to a, uh, some sort of diversion, and then the case was dropped. We don't report that. These are these based on laws and industry standards. And I, and I oh, point, I get that. And yeah. I may point out every state is different. So, you know, in today's society, you know, we may be doing a background check for a company in, in Kansas uh, for their branch in California for someone who lived in four different states. So what we most all of us do pre-employment screening is we follow a set of rules that are the most strict and will comply with all the states, even the most strict rules. Have you ever vetted an employee, found out some uh, very ugly things possibly in the background, but the business owner was so enamored with uh, the prospect that they hired them anyway against well, your against your recommendation well we don't give the recommendation whether to hire or not we just we just report the facts but i i did have a friend of mine who for whom we do business uh, run somebody and he had a series of bad checks and it was during this period of time and he did want my opinion so i said well hang up the phone now and call me on my home number and i'll talk to you as a friend but not, but not in this advisory capacity because it's not what I do. And then we talked about it, and we discussed the fact that this person went through a really bad period. And even though it was several offenses, it was a series of bad checks written over the course of maybe several months. And we, we kind of felt everyone deserves a second chance in life. And he did hire this person, and it was a few years ago. And last I heard, he's very glad he gave this person a second chance. Well, sometimes it works out in the benefit of everyone. Let's talk about your writing of uh, fiction, of novels. Three books? Well, three books. The first book is Walking the Corporate Beat, which is nonfiction. It's based on those business processes you and I discussed. And it, it draws upon my 27 years in the FBI and police department. And I give some, I feel, pretty entertaining stories of arrests, raids, investigations, and kind of what went wrong and how, it, uh, how things got screwed up. And I use those in, in the trainings I give to 
corporations to show them that here's how to fix these processes so things don't go wrong. Midnight Sin and Bad Intent are two of the other books that have been authored by Michael Tapman. How much of that stuff is real? I mean, they're novels, but how much of it, you know, might have the names have been changed to protect the not so innocent. <laughs> uh, and myself. Uh, <laughs> those are all based on reality. Uh, Midnight Sin is about a young police officer who comes on the department. Again, like most officers, uh, very idealistic, very energetic, and he has great career ambitions. But he quickly learns that uh, police work is not just about, you know, doing all the right things. There's politics like everywhere. Uh, crime is a gray area and all that. So he comes in there and he's maturing and it's really kind of follows his, his maturation process. And in the backdrop of this is a serial rape investigation. Uh, that also is based on a serial rape case. I worked when I was in plain clothes uh, with the Fairfax County Police Department. Really fascinating case. And it shows how that affected his career path and his, his interpersonal relationships. And it takes sort of through his whole uh, maturing process. And I do leave the book open for a sequel. So I want to go down that path. Had you always wanted to be a writer, be an author? Was that a dream? No, actually, this is kind of ironic. And, and I say this, and this is really true. Uh, when I was in high school, I took a creative writing course, and I almost failed. Uh, I am just, you know, very pithy. I, I don't know how to be flowery. And I had trouble just making, you know, one page turn to six or seven pages. And ironically, uh, my first assignment in the FBI was on white-collar crime. And when you do white-collar crime, we had to create this thing called, I forgot what it was called, some sort of report. And it was just full of stuff. You had to talk about this and that, you know, the, the stuff, time you wasted on what they called unproductive investigation. And half the time you wanted to write, writing this report. And, and also I gave it to my report. Uh, to my supervisor, and uh, I'll be careful of my language here. Well, you are from New York. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, uh, he calls me in and he says, hey, Tabman, this is a great police report. I said, thank you, sir. He says, no, it SU. Mm-hmm. And I said, what? You just said it's a great police report. He said, that's right, but you're not a police officer anymore. You're an FBI agent, and we are flowery. We are creative writers. And he said that to me, like, it was like, it pierced my heart. I said, oh, no, because <laughs> I am not. Because uh, the police department, they like my reports because they're so pithy. So I, I struggled with that. My entire FBI career was, you know, taking one page and making it flowery. And even my personnel uh, reviews. Uh, why are, okay, I'll, I'll bite. <laughs> why, are, why did he say, or is it true, FBI writers are creative? Yes, <laughs> we had to Because be. <laughs> you're government employees and you have to fill a lot of time. <laughs> kind of seems that way. I, it kind of, that was my reaction. Like, really? I thought I got right to the point here. Just get to the point. But uh, I saw that over uh, the course of my career, things kept getting set back to build it up. So I learned eventually, you know, by the time I retired, I learned how to take a sentence, make it three sentences, just say the same thing in different words. So I guess by the time I retired, I, I started to develop a little bit of a creative writing skill to you know, add some descriptors. And so Midnight Sin, I really try to really get into the mind of the police officer, the cop and criminal. And I think you know, some of the feedback I've gotten from uh, readers is they feel they've told me they're sitting there with uh, Officer Hollings in the car. And they feel they're right there with him when things are happening. And that's great feedback because that's what I want them to feel, what it's like to be a police officer, to understand uh, the impact everything has on them, the decision-making processes, and, and just what life is like. What time did you enjoy more, your time as uh, a uniformed officer or in plain clothes? Uh, very good question. Uh, people ask me that. I enjoyed patrol probably in the first year. I was only on patrol for two years. So in the first year, it's very new. Uh, you're very excited about being out there in uniform. 
You know, it's just, uh, you know, it's a big ego boost and it has some social benefits, too. Uh, you know, being be a police officer in uniform, I can't say. Uh, free, I should I say free donuts? Uh, no, I won't. No, it's a social benefit. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was really enjoying myself as a patrol officer. But then after a while, uh, you start not liking being in the spotlight every minute. You know, when you're having lunch or you're just sitting in the car trying to, you know, catch up on your report. You worry about someone sneaking up on you, having a cup of coffee. If you're talking to another officer, people come up and you know, make some sarcastic remark about, hey, you should be out there writing tickets. Or, so you, you start getting a little tired of being in the public eye. So at that point, after two years, I went to plain clothes. I was the hostage negotiator on the SWAT team, and we did uh, mostly anti-crime work. When we weren't SWATing, we were doing surveillance. And I really started enjoying that. I enjoyed the anonymity mm-hmm. and sort of sneaking up on somebody. So I, I have to say it was a fair balance. Looking at how uniformed officers are seen in the public eye these days, you, that's got to be a little disheartening to, and, and, and it's not necessarily across the board. Maybe it's just overblown in the media as far as the Fergusons and the Baltimores. And what, what's your no, That's on a that? great question. That's a very interesting point. Uh, you know, right now, after I leave this show, I'm, I'm running up to another city, uh, flying in there because a district attorney is going to announce whether or not a police officer is going to be prosecuted for a shooting. And, they, you know, they want my input on that. But the interesting thing is now when I hear the news of a police shooting, the default question is, is he going to be prosecuted? Mm-hmm. When did we ever have that before in history? That, the first question is, what did the officer do wrong? And that is troubling. And that's troubling to the officers out there. Uh, from what I'm hearing from my colleagues and people who've worked the job, is there is a hesitancy. They don't want to be the next YouTube uh, sort of uh, anti, you know, villain or anti-hero. Uh, they don't want to be on there being you know, uh, criticized and everyone you know, calling them uh, murderers. Uh, so they are a little afraid uh, you know, to take that extra step. Doesn't mean officers should be excused when they're wrong. I've always spoken out against uh, the police officers, even locally, when I felt they were wrong. They used excessive force. But we have to remember police officers are making decisions in split seconds in a very unclear environment. It's not always clear what they're doing. Um, you know, I, I really resent when people bring up the fact, oh, it was a BB gun. It was a toy gun. Well, that's very easy now looking at it. But in, in the situation, the officer can't wait to find out. And, and just for the viewers, I, I sometimes hear things people say, well, doesn't the officer have to be shot at first before he shoots? And the answer is no. An officer can defend himself. An officer is allowed to go home at the end of the day. So if there's clear and present danger. And, and his decision is reasonable based on the reasonable facts and circumstances at the moment. You have to look through the eyes of a reasonable police officer. And, you know, most of us are looking at it in retrospect. We're thinking what I would have done if I was a police officer. Most have not been that. Uh, they're basing on what they see on television. So I think it really has to be decided by people, that, you know, judges and experienced law enforcement officers who can make that decision understanding what the officer is going through. It's very easy to be doing hindsight. Do some of these stories make officers now today more hesitant to do their job for fear that they will be prosecuted? I, I Unfortunately, how, putting their life on the line quite yeah, I can't see how it's not. I can't see how it's not in the back of their mind that, you know, I'm being taped. And not that they shouldn't be open to that, that it's the most public of jobs, but, you know, if you feel every minute you're being followed by a camera and it's only going to capture, you know, this one minute or this one moment without, without you know, everything in toto, and you're worried, you're, again, I don't want to be on there, I don't want my family being subjected to all this, you know, hate mail and, and hate television uh, because I made a decision that, now again, some officers make bad decisions and, and some, you know, uh, go outside the law, but most of them are making good decisions, but it's under very, very vague and unclear circumstances. Michael Tabman, our guest today, an author of uh, several books and some still uh, on the way, sequels, as we heard earlier. Tell us where we can find your, your books. And what's the most current? Uh, the most current book is Bad Intent. 
Uh, that one I really had a lot of fun writing. That is based on my seven years on the FBI NYPD Drug Task Force. Uh, we were working in the Colombian cocaine trafficking and money laundering in New York City in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, we were it in the FBI at that time. There's really no other better work to be doing. Uh, we used every investigative technique uh, that we were legally <laughs> permitted to use, uh, and we just did it all. And we made some great cases, uh, seized a lot of drugs, seized a lot of money, arrested a lot of really bad people, undercover operations, wiretaps, all, all the things you, you want to read about. And uh, what was interesting, I was writing uh, the book, and my old partner, New York City detective, called me up, and he was talking about my first book, Midnight Sin. And he says, hey, Mikey, how come you didn't name the guy after me? So I said, you know, funny you should ask. I, I'm now writing a new novel, and the, uh, one of the characters is going to be a New York City detective. You want me to name him after you? So he said, yeah. So I, I made a little affectation of his name. But that changed the entire scope of my story because my old partner was such a colorful guy. He, you know, he's just a larger-than-life New York City detective. And everything you think about, I can tell you, uh, when I had my retirement party here uh, a long time ago, I was here locally, and I had a lot of interesting people there, local police chiefs, and uh, I had a guy from the CIA. But when he walked in, this detective from New York City walked in, you, you wouldn't think it was my party. There was a line of people waiting to talk to him. <laughs> and he was just full of stories, and he was just kind of you know, holding court, and everybody just wanted to talk to this guy. Of course, when he got up to make the toast in his heavy New York accent, you see everyone looking around saying, what did he just say? No one <laughs> we need somebody to translate, please. <laughs> Michael Tabman, our guest today, and your books are available on Amazon. Amazon, if you, you just search my name, Michael Tabman, or at michaeltabman.com. It's sort of my life story, and my life is an open book out there. I've Not much I've left behind. And you may see him on the news talking about a local business and crime and fraud because that's what you do. You're the called-upon expert. We appreciate your time here today. Thank you. This is really my pleasure. I really right. enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. And if you'd like to learn more about growing your business, check out our website at ithinkbigger.com. Follow us on Facebook at Thinking Bigger Business and on Twitter at I Think Bigger. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.